Today's scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 7. Um, it's actually verses 1 through 6. So Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Uh, which can be found on page 961 of the Pew Bibles. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning to everyone. My name is Phil Reinders. I'm one of the pastoral staff here. Let me lead you in prayer as we begin to reflect on God's Word. For millennia, God, people have cracked open this book with the expectation that they are going to hear your living voice. And so we, too, come with that expectation. We have heard you speak, God. It's a voice that runs counter to some of our instincts, a voice that challenges. And so we pray, give us open hearts and lives ready to pursue your way, which we know leads to peace and life and wholeness. Speak to us now, God, as we reflect on this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began a series of messages which is going to explore how do we steward the conflicts that we experience in our life. I think we would all admit they are there in our lives, in every different place of our life, whether it's work or home or neighborhoods or friendships. So how do we navigate those feuds and frictions where relationships go sideways and south, how can we be peacemakers in those places? How can we be reconcilers amidst all the frayed and fractured fabric of our world? Well, we saw last week how we're trying to reframe those conflicts and how Scripture leads us to understand and enter into and actually embrace these conflicts as opportunities opportunities in which three things can happen. We can glorify God in these. In no matter how hard that conflict is, you can glorify God in that conflict. You can serve the good of others, and you can grow to become more like Jesus Christ. And as we explored this uh, territory of hostilities and fights, the source we look to is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus we're looking to for guidance because he is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who can lead us to wholeness, 
It's a peace, true peace. No matter how difficult his way is, and it is challenging, no doubt about it, we are going to pursue it because Jesus is divinely right about this. History is littered with the shards of broken lives and families and communities and nations that have ignored the wisdom and teaching of Jesus, but it's not too late for us. And so we follow his way and we seek his peace. And as I've talked to many of you after last Sunday and throughout this past week, um, many of you have said, this is so timely for my life right now. This is hitting the mark where we're at. And as I've listened to many of you talk about it, I mean, we, we come burdened with some of the, the sadness and the grief about these divides in our lives. And one reality that I heard again and again from people was this sense of being stuck. You're in the middle of a conflict, but it feels like you're handcuffed about what to do next. About you, You've tried to take some steps forward, but it feels like there's just no way forward. And the good news about the way of Jesus is that we need to hear today is that no matter how difficult the conflict you face, no matter how deep the cut that you felt, the hurt that has stung, here's good news. You are not helpless. You possess. Jesus offers you a power, an agency to act. Jesus connects us with a power by which we can exercise in each and every one of our conflicts. There is a place where you can, in your conflicts, do something right now, and that place is you. You. Jesus, in this passage, some call it the parable of the plank and the speck. It's a teaching that comes straight out of the construction site or the carpentry uh, shop. Someone has been working and they've gotten a speck of sawdust in their eye. I hate when that happens, when you get something. You know how your body reacts to something in your eye, right? Tears are streaming, your body goes into minor convulsions. You ever see people try to get stuff out? I mean, they're just like, their hands are all over their face, their eyes, they're splashing water all over. Because you will not do anything until you get that speck out of your eye. <laughs> Now, this teaching of Jesus, it really is part comedy. And there's so much of Jesus in his teaching that should really get us laughing because the image that Jesus has is, okay, here's someone with a speck in the eye, um, but here's a coworker. Imagine a coworker coming along, again, probably carrying a load of lumber, saying, oh, let me help you. And you can imagine that that person is going to cause far more harm than help. And so Jesus says, get, the, get rid of the plank first. Get the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see well enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In our fights, in our conflicts, we are called to help those who have offended us, those who we might call our opponents. There is something bothering them. There is a real foreign object that is impairing their vision. There is a genuine aggravation that is preventing peace between you and them. It needs to be dealt with. Maybe they've spoken harsh words that have caused rupture. Maybe they have betrayed you. Maybe they have hurt you. It is real, and we owe it to them to deal with it forthrightly, frankly. But there's something we need to do first. First, Jesus says, 
we need to deal with our own junk. Jesus' teaching here is just plain, straightforward. Start first with your life. But why? You'd think we're self-aware enough people. We're aware of our own faults more acutely than we would be of others, right? You'd think I know my problems because they're my problems. Here's the truth we are so blind to. We don't notice them at all. Plank? What plank are you talking about, Jesus, really? We have great clarity about other people's problems. We are great at blaming other people when relationships go south or sideways, when there's problems in our life. My grades are so bad because my teacher just can't teach well. (laughs) You know what's really wrong? It's my job. It's my boss, my coworkers, it's my house. The problem is my spouse. The problem is I don't have a spouse. My problem is you. Jesus exposes a truth that fills all of the conflicts, that we have this incredibly sharp eagle eye to name and spot the tiniest of problems of others, but we cloak and cover over the massive stuff in our lives. This is the plank Jesus is talking about. He's saying before you handle any conflict, before you enter into that territory, really the first step, you can begin right now the work of peacemaking by looking at yourself. First things first. Because one of the complexities of conflict is its capacity to impair our vision, to see accurately and correctly. We rarely see correctly into the conflicts that face us. We get so inflamed by emotions, don't we? The pain, the hurt we feel can be so stinging that it just blinds us. We naturally turn defensive. We harden our hearts. And it leaves us unable to accurately see the role that we may have had in that conflict. There is this universal stubborn streak of blaming others, judging others, and avoiding our own responsibility. We, we gladly and quite capably overestimate the faults of others. We attribute to them, you know, their character. You know, obviously there is something deeply flawed in their character for them to have done this. What sinful human beings. And then we underestimate our faults or we attribute them to situations. Like, well, come on, anyone would have done that in this situation, right? Psychologists have a name for that. They call this the attribution error. Where does that come from? Where do we get this ingrained habit to blame others, to push things off of ourselves onto others? We're not created for that. In Genesis, the book of Genesis, when God created human beings, Genesis 1 talks about how God created humans within the image of God. And part of that image was the capacity to act, to have agency, the power to do things. It is God-like for us to possess responsibility. In fact, human beings flourish. They're most fulfilled and alive when they have meaningful responsibility in life. God made people to be responsible, and he gave them one rule. God said to the first man and the first woman, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the tree, the the desire to judge, 
one another. But the first men and women, they do just that. God says, don't do that. They turn against God. They rebel against his authority. And notice the first impulse when they are confronted with their culpability, when they are confronted with their responsibility for what went wrong, what do they do? God asks Adam, have you eaten from the tree I told you not to? What does Adam say? The woman you gave me, she did it. Not my fault, not my bad God. Actually, Adam is sort of blaming both God and the woman, right? The woman you gave me, God, (laughs) that's partly your fault. She's the one who did it. Eve continues in the same cycle. Eve, what happened? The serpent, he made me do it. Not my bad, not my fault. This is all of our story. It began there and it has continued again and again. We avoid owning our faults, our part in the problem. A common name for that is scapegoating. The pain of our guilt, the chaos of a conflict is often just too much to bear and we need relief from it and so we push it away, we scapegoat it, we, we, we offload it. Um, the weight of anger and resentment and chaos and shame. And from our first parents forward, this long human practice to scapegoat, to find somebody, some group to blame, even if it's not their fault, it's a powerful dynamic. We scapegoat others so we don't have to own it ourselves. We do that all over. We do it, for instance, in intimate relationships. Think for a minute of, of marriages. Um, my wife is a marriage and family therapist. When she did practice, she would meet with distressed couples, and um, she would often say how it's so difficult for any one of those partners in a distressed relationship to own their part in the breakdown of that relationship. I find working with, with people in that situation, often it's helpful to uh, locate the problem by using a pie chart. So imagine that circle. Imagine that circle is the totality of the mess of a marriage, right? Everyone's contribution, that represents the total trouble of that marriage, the full mess. You ask that spouse who comes to see you to draw what part of that pie represents the part for which you are responsible for. And they'll generally split the pie up in this way. That's probably generous, actually. Which which slice of the pie do you believe they might say, yeah, that's my part? The bigger slice or the smaller slice? Pretty much 100% of the way, they will say, that, that smaller slice, yeah, you know what, I, I can own that. That's mine. The bigger part, that's my spouse. You would not believe what they've been doing. I can list for you all the things. This is how much blame and responsibility they have. Now, let's say that's true. Okay, we'll just grant this scenario. Okay, you know, that's roughly, what, 75, 25. Let's say 25% is yours. Um, Let's focus in on that 25%, because that's the only part you can actually control, right? Let's let's work on that. And you would not believe, even even if you would reduce that to 3%, it is so difficult for any person to focus in on that. They find it so very difficult, and and right away they're talking about all the other stuff that is their spouse's fault. They're they're scapegoating. It's 
It's one of the most dangerous dynamics that keep fueling all of our conflicts. It's almost the default of the human heart to complain about the speck in the other person's eye and ignore the plank in our own. And you see the danger of this when scapegoating gets writ large, when it happens in nations and in people groups. Hitler and the Nazi regime scapegoated Jewish people. In Rwanda, it was Tutsis who were scapegoated. Scapegoating leads us to dehumanize people. We turn our opponents, whether it's in nations or even in our conflicts, we turn our opponents into moral monsters. They're no longer human. Now, it's important, really important for us to know that it is so critical for us as humans to be able to rid ourselves of the chaos and the tension and the, the disharmony that we experience in these conflicts. We need to get free from the weight of the guilt and the shame involved in that. That's a human need. In the Old Testament, there was a means by which God showed his people how they might live in a restored relationship with him. In the book of Leviticus, we read about how on the Day of Atonement, the priest would select the goat. And during a ceremony, that priest would place his hand on the goat. And it was called the scapegoat. This is where we get the term from. And he would put his hands on that goat and confess the sins of Israel and the weight of the blame, the weight of the disruptured relationship they had with God was being transferred to that goat. And then that goat was released into the wilderness as a picture of how the sins of Israel have been removed, they're forgiven by God, their relationship with God is once again restored. It was a picture for how God could forgive. It's where we get that name scapegoat from. The idea was sacrificing the scapegoat would heal the community. Um, from the chaos, from the ten- tension, nobody was created to carry. And that was meant to be a picture, and actually it was meant to be a pointer. It was not meant to be an ongoing practice by which you do that to others. It was a pointer to a reality of how God functions, and it was a pointer to something else. It was a pointer to Jesus, because something unprecedented happens in the Bible. This ancient universal practice of scapegoating actually gets undermined. It gets undone. And it all comes to the climax in the person of Jesus because Jesus Christ is the perfect Son of God, utterly blameless, spotless, the sinless Holy One. And Jesus enters into the brokenness of this world to become the scapegoat once and for all, so that it never need be repeated again in all of our human living. He comes to take the blame, all of the weight of the chaos and the tension, the shame, the guilt is placed upon Jesus. It is, he is scapegoated so that even the final judge of Jesus, Pontius Pilate, continues the scapegoating. Remember what Pontius Pilate says? As Jesus is convicted to die, he washes his hands and says, don't blame me, I am innocent of this man's blood. Not my fault, not my bad. And yet on the cross, Jesus lays bare the, the mechanisms, the violence, the injust, the wickedness of scapegoating. And we're told in the New Testament, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself 
to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin but live for righteousness. In Christ's great love, he takes willingly, becomes the scapegoat, taking on himself all of our sin, the violence, the hatred, the wickedness of the world. He prays the price. He makes atonement. He heals our relationship with God. And in his resurrection from the dead, Jesus proclaims there is a new way of relating and living because the way of blaming and stigmatizing and rejection and condemning is done. It is done and over because Jesus has become against all odds the great scapegoat, the ultimate scapegoat, the one who takes upon our sins upon himself so we can be forgiven and so we can forgive. That also is not just a powerful dynamic. That is the power we possess in any conflict. The power to stop blaming, to stop returning evil for evil, to stop accusing, and to take a first step of humility and look at ourselves. The weight of blame has been taken by Jesus. We are justified by God through Jesus Christ. We don't need to justify ourselves. We don't need to defend ourselves anymore because Jesus has done so. And so we are freed then to ask in any and all conflicts to be open and transparent and ask, how have I contributed to this conflict? What have I said? What have I done? What have I thought that has fueled this fight? Now, don't mishear me in this. This doesn't mean that we're going to ignore injustice. It doesn't mean you, you, you sort of you know, shunt aside the wrongs that have been committed. You don't deny how you have been the victim of a horrible abuse or betrayal or a pain that you did not ask for and you cannot control. Not at all. That is very much a part of the process of healing our conflicts. But we will never get to the healing of those conflicts without this first step. In fact, the only way we can get to a just resolution of any of our conflicts is if we take this first step of self-examination, of honest confession. Because if we do not honestly look at and name and admit our own faults and sins, here's what's going to happen. We are going to think and act unjustly of others. We will seek vengeance instead of peace. Only when we first deal with our own sin and junk are, can we have any hope that we might be able to actually correct someone unabusively without trying to humiliate them. Unless we first take the step of owning our own stuff and looking humbly at ourselves, we will not come to any honest, just resolution because our speech will be so filled with anger and hostility that whoever it is we're in conflict with, they won't be able to hear us. And so what Jesus is getting at here is, is really this first step of preparing ourselves. He's getting us to do is set the stage, sort of clearing the, the rubble of judgment and blame so that we can now clearly, humbly, honestly enter into this conflict so that we can name what's real. This first step of peacemaking, of, making, of seeing yourself honestly, taking the plank out of your own eye. This is the power you and I can exercise right now to examine ourselves, to do a searching inventory of our own hearts, to check your heart for lumps, 
This is a step we can take right now to begin to pursue peace. You do not have to wait for a first move from the other side of the conflict. In fact, this first step that you might take actually will invite a similar step from the other side by first looking at yourself. So ask yourself, how have my words, my actions, the thoughts of my mind, how have the kinks in my character contributed to this situation? Have I been overly sensitive? Or maybe have I not been sensitive enough? How about my heart? Am I, is my heart properly oriented to God's grace and mercy that have been extended to me? Have I remembered how God has forgiven me? Because not even a bitter conflict should overshadow the joy of God's forgiveness of me. How much of my ego is wrapped up in this conflict? In all of our conflicts, do you need to be right, come what may? Do we need to maintain some image of superiority in it all? Pride, oh man, pride so blinds us. It puffs us up, our ego, so that we can hardly see our faults. Do we need to let go of some pride? Starting first with ourselves means affirming also our own fallenness. Accepting the fact that we are imperfect, that we are limited, that we are broken, that we're sinful. And so that means, very likely, we could be wrong. Proverbs says this, people may think all their ways are pure, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Our motives are never as pure as we think they are. To know our sinfulness automatically keeps you from being too sure of your own position, from speaking too strongly um, to other people on the other side of the conflict, because you realize, I may not be seeing things so well. Or could you have done something that either created or contributed to this conflict? Have you perhaps rejected the authority of someone somewhere? Or perhaps have you misused the authority you've had? Have you failed to live up to your responsibilities, perhaps to keep your word, your commitment? There are so many ways we can actively contribute. How about your speech? Are your words a plank that you need to get rid of? When you try to address this conflict, what's the tone of your speech? Does the volume of your voice go way up in those conflicts? Isn't discipline, verbal expression so important in how we navigate our conflicts? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this. He's, con he's concerned about speech. Fascinating. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only, only what is helpful for building others up according to their need. Unwholesome talk is a fairly big term. It's not only content, it's tone too. Is your speech like a plank? What about the attitudes of your heart towards your opponents? Is there ill will in your heart? We need to check for that. Are you continually replaying the tapes of the wrong that was inflicted upon you in your imagination in order to keep alive that sense of hurt, to keep it fresh in your mind so that you can stay actively, so you can keep that anger burning bright, so that you can feel virtuous by contrast? Listen to Proverbs again. In a couple of weeks, we're going to look at more of these Proverbs and the wisdom they have for conflict. But look at this. Proverbs says, whoever seeks good finds good, but evil comes to those who search for it. What are you looking for in a conflict? 
Do you expect to find something wrong in someone else? Do you easily demonize the offender in your imagination, failing to, again, recognize that we share common humanity? Do you hope that they'll fail? How about instead we actually pray positively for their growth, for their faith, for them to flourish? Every one of us has a plank, friends. This is a human condition. So the question is, what's your plank? The psalmist says this, who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults, God. That's the plank we don't even notice. This is what Jesus is talking about. We don't even see these things. What's your plank? The call of Jesus is to have the humility to say, there likely is something fairly significant in my life that I need to work on. So liberate the lumber from your own eye. This week, ask God to help you name the plank that needs to be pulled from your eye. Count on this. If we invite him, the Holy Spirit will come and will show us what we can do. He'll show us the plank. He'll help us name it, even the one we can't see. He'll give us the power to name it and through confession to be free from it. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. And let's do that right now. Let's pray and ask God's Holy Spirit to do that among us. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, we thank you that the, the dynamic of scapegoating has become undone through the cross. Thank you for unraveling the blame game that keeps fueling conflicts by taking it on yourself. This is astonishing, Jesus, how you step into the middle of that cycle of, of blaming and you take it upon yourself to neutralize it. Thank you for dealing with our very real need to be rid of the burden of chaos, the weight of guilt that we can't bear. Thank you for becoming our scapegoat, for freeing us from this, freeing us to pursue peace now. And Jesus, thank you for the wisdom you speak to us. We acknowledge this may be one of the most difficult steps for us to take, the very first one, but we ask you for the grace and the power to pray one of these deepest relationship prayers we can pray, and it is this, Lord, change me. We're not asking God, Lord, change him. We're not praying, Lord, change her, change them, change it. It is simply, it is humbly, Lord, change me. Change my attitude towards my classmates. Change my negative attitude at work and with my colleagues. Change my sarcasm with my spouse. Change the way I relentlessly nag my children, God. Change my defensive spirit. Change my stubborn streak, God. Help us with all the planks that we have in our eyes. Thank you, God, for the power that you provide us to do this. Would you now warm our hearts by the grace of Jesus Christ? Would we see visibly portrayed before us Jesus, the scapegoat, the one who has taken it all, and would that move us to pursue his path of peace? In the name of Jesus, our peace, we pray. Amen.